Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Andrew Grossman. And I'm Kate Sadoff. In this episode, we sit down with Lebanese playwrights Melia Ayash and Amina Hassan to discuss their co-authored play titled Splitskin. Splitskin is part of Issue 43.2's international feature on Lebanese writers. We'll talk about their process of collaboration, the influence of fairy tales and founding myths, and the global love affair between fathers and their television sets. But first, you'll hear poet and NER managing editor Leslie Sines read the first three monologues. The first sound, a loud sustained creaking, wailing but not totally unpleasant, melodic even, both far away and close by. Is it a satellite dish twisting in the wind? A young woman appears. She is the girl. Our roofs are full of satellite dishes that look like mushrooms. They sit next to pigeon coops and gray plastic water reservoirs. I come up here to check the water levels and adjust our dish. I'm not sure whether our dish transmits radio signals, but it definitely receives them all the way from satellites in space. Once, I read that space is becoming as littered as Earth, that there are all kinds of weapons and bits and pieces of ships and rockets that people are sincerely worried about. We buy a subscription from the guy down the street, and he taught me how to program the channels on the box for my father. I heard that the idea for satellites came from a science fiction writer who thought of positioning space apparatuses in geosynchronous orbit right above the Earth's equator. Then the Soviets experimented and the Americans followed, and now we all sleep with them above our heads. The standard dish size is anywhere from 45 to 90 centimeters. Dishes come equipped with filters to block out any extra noise. They are called low noise blocker receptors, and they gather up all the radio waves that they can and then turn them all into one signal that gets sent into the house through a cable. Some dishes have as many as three of these filters. Sometimes, when I'm up here on the roof, I try to hear all that extra noise, the multitude of voices, the millions of lost signals from very far away. When I think of space, I do think of aliens, of course, But mostly, I think about why my father can't come up here and turn the dish himself. I don't think of the aliens up there because my father is the alien inside me, and I'm the alien inside myself. (sighs) The Family Home, Beirut, November 2019. A fatherly armchair is center stage facing the audience. Next to it, a pile of clothes, as well as a side table. On the side table, an empty plate of food a remote control, and a cell phone. Downstage left, pairs of sneakers marking the entrance to the daughter's room. The girl approaches the pile of clothes, takes a breath, and puts them on, thus becoming her father. She has no other choice. This process should be a moment. Then, the girl, as the father, finds a sneaker and examines it. He puts on his cheap drugstore glasses, finding imperceptible markings on the sneaker. The girl, as the father. I just bought these shoes for her. They're brand new and she cannot keep them clean. What has she stepped in? What has she been doing? They look awful. What will people say? That the doctor doesn't buy new shoes for his daughters? That I don't provide for them? And this kid, this kid keeps on drawing on her shoes. She does not wear shoes. 
If she wears shoes, then it's not because it is customary for girls to wear shoes when they're outside of their homes. She wears shoes because she wants to draw on them. These shoes are beyond any sense of fashion. They're beyond any sense of modesty. There's no sense in this kid other than opposition, the sense, the sole purpose of opposing me. Why do they wear pants that hang so low so that the tops of their little hairs show? Why do they wear tops that are too short? Is this how girls should dress? It's the fault of the television, but more the fault of their mother, their foreigner mother. If it weren't for her being different, the girls would not be different. And if the girls were not different, then I wouldn't stick out. Then I could just have these tendrils that grew from the sides of my body and no one would say anything. They would accept that kind of anatomy, but they would never accept this. Every night I lock the door and even with the door locked, they have all they need on the inside. A television, midnight snacks, a bathroom, and microfiber covers so they don't get cold. But they do something to their shoes and I don't know what they are doing. Is it possible that they are escaping? For God's sake. Is it because of God? What is so difficult about this? It shouldn't be difficult. God knows what he is up to. God knows what to do. If God makes life difficult for me, then it is because there is a sense and meaning to hardship, but they are blind to all sense. The kid has a sense of self. No, the kid does not have my sense of self. The kid does not make sense. Look at those shoes. They're not very feminine. And then she complains about her sore feet that I am supposed to fix for her after she's ruined her health by irresponsibly wearing boys' shoes. That's how it goes. God gives you feet, they wear the wrong shoes, and then I am supposed to fix them for them. He stares at the shoes. Should he try them on? He almost does it before giving up and abandoning the experiment. Frustrated, he rushes to the side table where the cell phone is. The girl, as the father, talking into the phone without even dialing. Mother? Mother? Hello? Mother? Hello? Mother, are you where I left you? There's a very bad connection and there's no television signal either. Are you in the kitchen? Are you in the garden? Are you scaling a mountain? I told you not to. You are not well. Stop doing that. Are you scared? Don't be. Please don't be. If you faint again, there won't be anyone to take care of me and my siblings. Why don't you pick up your phone? You have a phone for a reason. You have a phone so I can hear you when I am unwell. You think you have a phone so you can call me when you're fainting? It's only two buttons, one to talk and one to close. You don't need to read to use the phone. Don't be upset. Please don't be upset. It's all right. Remember when you used to say that the day they brought a light bulb to your village, you knew that the world was going to end? And before that, you would laugh and laugh when people would tell you about streets in the nighttime all alight with electricity. And you used to tell us what the elders told you about the year you were born, when the sultan starved the land, when the beginning of the end started, when all you had to eat were orange peels, the rind, that's all. And when we were young and we had worms and they came out of us, we were so sick and they made us skinny. We were so poor. But we aren't anymore. We got you a phone. The worms made everyone skinny. I wasn't as skinny as my brother. All my brother ever did was sleep. I could recite poetry at a young age. You made me stand on a chair and recite poems for neighbors and family from memory. The questions of waiters at restaurants scare me. I am so scared of animals. Remember the goat in the basement when you told me to get the chair? This basement smelled so much like mold. It smelled so much like pesticides. The goat came running and blatting out of nowhere. I lost my voice for three days. I could not recite a poem. 
I could not speak during classes. I was smarter than my brother, but my brother was stronger. He was a proctor and beat up all the little shits that would beat me. I was proud to be his brother. When we drive by the school, I tell my daughters about all the beating he did for me. Father beat us so much when we'd bring home bad grades. My brother wasn't expected to be as good a student as I was. I got into private school after all. My brother blackmailed me whenever I had a bad grade. It went on for weeks. I hated him. I prayed for the school bus to be swallowed up by the sea so I wouldn't have to go home and face my father. My father would wake us up at five in the morning, then we had to follow him to the bathroom. This is where we received the belt. I just hoped that my younger sisters could not hear us on the other side of the bathroom door and that my schoolmates would not see my dad's small car when he dropped us off at school in the morning. I pretended not to see him when he came to pick up my report cards. How could I be so bad to a father who peeled two apples for us every morning, one for my brother and one for me? My brother always made sure that my apple wasn't bigger than his and that our apple peels were of the same length. My voice came back when a sheik prayed for me. He clears his throat before he continues talking. <clears throat> he makes sure his voice is still there. Mother, the girls are asking about you. If you die, I will feel guilty. I feel guilty when I see the bags of cheap batteries under your couch. Why do you keep them? Don't keep everything we give you. Just throw them away. Don't only eat the fatty cuts of meat. Don't use only one square of toilet paper and save everything for when the war might come again. We built you a house after Israel bombed this one. We kept the room all of us we were born in, but it's not a space for you to live in. You have a salon, you have a kitchen, you have real bathroom with a toilet that protrudes out of the floor that emerges from the ground. You don't need to go in the old-style toilet in the ground by the garden. Stop it. Remember that I brought my daughters back to meet you and for you to teach them how to be good how to stay close to the earth, to the ground. They love it when you take out your false teeth and smile at them all gums. When you take them up around the mountain littered with landmines and catch a pheasant by its feet, rip out all of its feathers and cook it for them and serve it. What am I saying? They hate it. They want pale chicken smothered under clear plastic, a bloody tissue sopping up the juices underneath. I wish my girl was clean like you. I wish my girl ate soap like you. I wish this girl had chocolates like you. I wish she understood the importance of not playing in the dirt. You're unhappy with her, I understand. I'm not happy myself. I could tell you liked her when she was seven weeks old when she could not resist your pinching hand. I know you stopped liking her a year later. You don't like shy kids. She can't speak to you. Her mouth is resistant to soap and my language. Her mouth is too full of her mother. Her mouth does not know of you. She clings to her mother. Her mother secretly likes it. Her mother thinks it's normal for a girl her age to be quiet. I think she should talk about her secrets. You think so as well, right, mother? I tell her to talk. I talk to her all the time. When I am dissatisfied with work or when I am sad about the distance that is between you and me, when I am dissatisfied with her mother and the people of her mother, I wrap myself in silence. I'm entombed. She props up words and tries to talk to me. I won't hear her. I don't feel like talking. I look right through her. She tries to capture my attention by putting a hand on my arm. I will withhold everything from her. I don't want to talk. 
Talking is the privilege of those who will be listened to. She can't recite a thing. I intend to close my ears in front of this mess of a child until she knows how to talk to me, until she knows how to love a father. Hi, I'm Melia Ayash. I am an actor and writer um, based out of Beirut, Lebanon, recently doing a stint in Pittsburgh. And I wrote with Amina Hassan a play for the New England Review called Split Skin. Hi, I'm Amina Hassan. I'm a German-Lebanese playwright from Beirut. And I'm currently studying playwriting at the University of the Arts in Berlin. Could we start by having you both talk us through your process of collaboration? Like, how did you begin working on this piece together? How did it evolve through collaborating? And what was it like working with each other? So this play, this uh, mini play, uh, couldn't have been anything but collaborative because it came out of this rupture of a moment right before the revolution. I mean, during the revolution, it was a very intense, energetic time when um, fall 2019, everything was going wrong in the country and no one admitted that things were going wrong and it was a very fraught time. I remember being exhausted a lot at this time and I was teaching at the American University of Beirut. Amina was once my student in 2017. I taught a playwriting class and introduction and we'd kept in touch um, mostly uh, our relationship has been about writing and reading and theater. Theater as an art that we both found ourselves in. Um, so I'd see Amina on campus in 2019 and we'd talk about things and I found out very early on that she was enrolled in a class called On Anxiety taught by Professor Najibo Ali. And On Anxiety was kind of a philosophical class with a lot of uh, psychoanalysis and political theory. So it was really interesting because I, I had found out from friends about it. And even though I was teaching, I thought, hey, this is cool. I can audit a class. If anything, this is the most anxious moment I've ever been in politically, socially, emotionally. And I think a lot of the stuff we read in that class was so uh, inspiring and it kind of was fertile ground for art. And maybe, Amina, you want to talk about what happened mid this class, just in the middle of it. Yeah, so um, what happened in the middle of this class was that uh, the Thaura, the revolution began, and uh, there, you know, it felt like time was kind of frozen. And Melia, I think, recognized pretty quickly that this was the right moment to start writing because we had planned some sort of a collaboration since 2017 and she was really trying to push me into writing and it took me a while to get there because I was overwhelmed with anxiety um, in the face of all the opportunities that were presenting themselves in this crack in time and um, 
Milia was like took it to the streets really fast and uh, she was out there protesting and I couldn't join because I was I lived in a completely different part of the city and I couldn't get there you know there were the ro roads were being blocked and so we started to write together on a virtual pad at the same time and um, I think this element of physical distance really affected the nature of the collaboration because I think when we speak of collaboration it usually involves an element of physical proximity um, but this way we were working together from a distance but at the same time and um, I think that the pad, the virtual pad was not only a technology or a means to an end, it was something that got incorporated by the play and um, that became a component of it, you know, this, um, this element of, of distance and um, that also affected the play structurally and also just working together like that felt like sharing a secret, you know, like writing fan fictions together or exchanging letters. Um, it was it was quite intimate, and um, because there were just like many openings, many cracks, ma many things that we um, always wanted to talk about but didn't talk about, and um, we just had this. We began to have a conversation virtually, and uh, this is kind of how how the play was written. If I may add, um, th there's nothing. You you feel so vulnerable working in the theater sometimes, especially when you're doing devised work. And working on this ether pad where Amina or I or any kind of interlocutor could have come online and deleted everything. Um, I don't know if you've ever used an ether pad before, but it's it's really fascinating. And I'd worked with my old theater company a little bit in this medium where it's totally democratic and dangerous because there's no uh, username saying Melia or Amina is writing this. So the form of this piece and the the author the authorship of this piece is is so interesting because uh i couldn't really tell where amina's writing stopped and mine began and and i think vice versa so we're writing in different colors but we're adding we're working paragraph by paragraph sentence by sentence word by word adding uh descriptors to words uh really muddying the waters of our of what we conceive as authorship and theater should be radically collaborative and i think that this this play was uh the best way to have a conversation about these happenings around town about this revolution this break in time uh because we couldn't reach each other as Amina said, and it was just uh, explo explosive on the page. I, I don't know how long it took us to write it, but I have a vivid memory of sitting in my apartment where I am right now in Beirut um, on the couch and finishing a play and feeling like we've, we've found an arc. And yes, we went back and we added things and we had a great editing session IRL in this very same apartment uh, in 2021 when we found out from Marilyn Hacker who curated uh, the writers from Beirut, that she wanted to publish something. So it gave us the impetus to really sit down and get that, that real theatrical, in-person, sharing breath moment of, of working together. Yeah, I think the overall writing process, like the initial writing of the play, I think it took two weeks um, max. And um, what was so... 
I think eye-opening for me about this collaboration was just how much we need others to to talk about our current times. I think the world has come to a place where it's really hard to um, talk about things all by ourselves. And um, what I found really interesting is that when we were editing the play, Milia had a moment of hesitation and um, was kind of in the same anxious space I had been in before writing the play. And, um, you know, then it was me who was kind of pushing her where she had pushed me before. And um, I think that's what's really comforting about um, an artistic collaboration like that is that you have somebody who can ease you and comfort you when um, you're at your most anxious. Anxiety follows us. Um, I'm so glad we took that class to maybe make sense of it a little or not. But I, I just wanted to go back to some something in that class that really inspired me to want to, to reach out to Amina in the sense that we were, I was, we were reading Freud and a little bit of Lacan, Kierkegaard, uh, all on anxiety and a lot about desire. And there was this book that was mentioned by a Lebanese writer called Day of Blood. And this was about um, Ashura, um, which, uh, which, which is very ritualistic in some ways and has its own, uh, its own performative aspects to it. Uh, so I thought that would be so cool from a theatrical sense. How, what, what, what do these what do these preparations look like? Is it anything akin to theater? And I think that was the very first seed of the play, um, being such, being in such a heightened moment, uh, even before the revolution, just trying to make sense of rampant inequality and adherence to certain, to certain stories and narratives and performative, uh, rituals and ceremonies. So I just wanted to hark back on that. That was really, really, really cool to have Amina in, in that class with me and, and just kind of have it all click. Like, oh, we should, we wanted to work on something. We should be working on something. And everything we're reading is telling us we need to make art from all of this. Wow, that sounds like a kind of paradoxically radically intimate experience in writing that that's super cool to hear um but do you see this piece as being performed or kind of living a separate life as a piece of literature we wrote it with the intention to be performed uh, kind of like if you come up with a recipe for uh, a cake it, it's not the same thing to crumple up the recipe and uh, devour it it doesn't taste the same <laughs> Uh, but we really, it was an exercise in our theatrical imagination because so much of the, the crux of the play, and, and Emin and I were talking earlier, the rage in the play, it's a trade-off between what is happening physically on stage and what is being said. And that's something that really um, that emerged in a way from what we learned in that class. I mean, I say I learned, but I literally forgot everything from that class. Uh, it, it's just, there have been so many gaps in my memory and our memory. Uh, remember, this is happening before the formalization of kind of online working together, Zoom rooms, breakout bars, whatever. And what I, what I mean to say here is that 
during this class, we talked a lot about language and meaning and the tension between the two. And it feels kind of um, easy to read it. It reads nicely. It's it's not, I, th I think so, in my humble opinion, it reads nicely, but that it's not yet whole if it's not performed. Uh, because I think we really need to see how people take this and interpret it. Um, so I'm... I'm dying for someone to take this up and, and perform it. Maybe one of the students from Middlebury, maybe. I hope so. Um, maybe anybody who finds it interesting and compelling can perform it. Yeah, I think what we're both dealing with and uh, what what we have all been trying to come to terms with after the revolution and the onset of COVID and hyperinflation and the blast is just that um, we witnessed in real time um, a fantasy of Beirut as not only a comfortable, but also a luxurious and maybe campy place to live in, you know, a place like Dubai or a Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Um, seeing the fantasy of Lebanon being whole, um, just being shattered over and over again. And um, we're kind of recovering from that, you know, um, yeah, coming back to the performance aspect of the piece, when I think of the play, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the set and the props and the action that oftentimes, oftentimes contradict what is being said or, um, you know, the rage that sometimes, you know, whenever it's expressed in words, it's absent um, and not on stage. And whenever, whenever there is rage being performed or taken out on on an object it's not in the words and i think this contradiction is um, quite essential to the play looking more into the specifics of the piece um, i was curious the girl plays versions of her family that seem simultaneously through her eyes and outside of them to the point where it's hard to know exactly whose subjectivity we're seeing um, are these characters representations of the ways they're understood by the girl, or is it the girl that is a representation of herself composed by the perception of those around her? What was the decision to portray your characters in this unique way? Um, I think the ways we portrayed our character came pretty much from our working process. If I think about how we constructed the characters, the image that comes to my mind is something like a coat hanger and then each of us just adding layers and layers of, of clothes and um, accessories, so to speak, and then removing them again, you know, kind of like when you're dealing with a dollhouse and you're adding things and removing things. And um, on one hand, of course, those are characters that have personalities and an inner life, but they're also types. They're archetypes or like figures from fairy tales you know, it's already in the title, it's split skin. This is a character who has to contain a whole family inside of her body. And um, the play is set in the middle of a body politic that contains too much discourse and too many founding myths to um, ever experience a stable moment. And um, what also plays an important role here is, again, time and how there was this moment where time felt frozen and there's both kind of a pressure cooker feeling but there's also a um, expansion of self where um, all kinds of 
desires and gazes mingle both both from the outside and from within. We were really uh, fascinated by the idea of ways in which we uh, are alienated to ourselves and how many different characters we hold in ourselves vis-a-vis society, but also our uh, intergenerational histories and stories, stories that families tell. And I, I think that one of the things that was clear to us um, was that there was a lot of kindness uh, and and love in this play. As, as it, it may be grotesque at sometimes uh, at moments, but I think it was interesting to find out through the writing process uh, that if we are so alienated from ourselves, then the alienation from the father is almost softened or mitigated and there's a lot of commonality and common ground that we found with this figure of the father. Similarly on that point, in this piece no one has a definite name and despite these intimate details that we hear about their lives, in name the characters are anonymous and there's an interesting tension between the fact that this is specific, the girl, the mother, the father, and yet they're nameless. How do you feel this contributes to the identity of this piece? We are both uh, very obsessed with fairy tales. I think during uh, during lockdown, Amina turned me on to the Czech version of The Little Mermaid. So this has always been something we've shared. And in fairy tales, even if characters have names, they're often changed from generation to generation, iteration to iteration. Uh, I think Amina said the word archetype um, we're, we're trying to make sense of certain archetypes that exist within this country uh, based on, you know, how do they fit into these uh, competing national myths and narratives, uh, just like uh, the, the names of the gods change from Greek to Roman, etc., to Jude- Judeo-Christian. Uh, we, we were interested in, in just having these figures be represented um, and the fact that it's so specific is that it is so specific. It is it is a very uh, it is a, it is a very particular kind of world we're talking about. A very insular and isolated uh, world that has a lot of tensions from within and also uh, from from the outside. The relationship between the father and the television is also fascinating. It's um, simultaneously a symbol for the new culture that he feels is leading the girl astray and away from his control, but also a form of comfort for him in the form of constant information. So we're curious about this and kind of the role of television in the piece. Um, Maybe where did this inspiration come from or where does this play into the splits you talk about? In our vision of the archetypical father, the father is glued to the TV and deciphers hidden meanings in the television and and this is not i think this is really funny in some ways because uh, many fathers are like this um all over the world uh many mothers too but especially fathers um they have a certain access in, in to interpreting whatever hidden codes lie there so I, for me, this is one of this is the funniest moment of the play, uh, and it it even makes me chuckle just thinking about it now. 
the TV is slick and and soothing, and it's so easy to get to get sucked in and and to be uh, cradled and and lullabied by it. So I, I think it also shows a very soft side of the father as well. Um, but I'm interested in hearing what Amina says about that too. To me, the TV is um, closely linked to the satellite dish and. You know, there's a tension in there. On one hand, those are the things that call the father home when he's abroad. And on the other hand, they also carry the alluring and addictive voice of globalization. And um, it makes the father procrastinate. It delays action. Um, and it makes him avoid confrontation with power. Um, and it also keeps him distracted from the ways in which he has been exploited. And, um, you know, to maintain a fantasy of a prosperous Lebanon. And I think to kind of zoom out a bit, I think this type of um, distraction and um, alienation is something that we're all, that we all have to deal with. Um, you know, we're all trapped, we're, we're all trapped in, in, the things that keep us going and that get us addicted and that keep us from taking action. You know, cheap sugar and coffee and, and TikToks and pop music and they make us forget about our bodies and the possibilities of the instant moment. And the TV here, the television, is just uh, another, um, another fantasy, another myth in a world built on fantasy, made up of it. Uh, this is something that we were discussing as we were writing, how many battling myths and stories and narratives, there isn't one overarching one. So everybody is, is, is fighting in this in a certain way, different voices fighting to be heard. Wow, that's really cool to think about, especially considering this as such an embodied work in itself. Um, I think this is our last question, and then we want to open it up if there's anything you guys are really excited about. And this question, I think we've kind of had a hard time articulating, but um, yeah, so in some ways, we felt like it, it, the piece reads as a subverted coming-of-age story because the girl's externally presented in the opening stage directions as a young woman, and then she's introduced as the girl. And then the piece ends in many ways where it began with a repetition of opening stage directions. And in the final monologue, she is subsumed as the father, the girl as the father, repeating what she believes he wishes for her to say. Um, so how did you both approach gender and what do you feel is the role of femininity, especially having um, female characters presented through the girl and having the girl present those characters as the father? What's interesting about this question is that it um, made me remember that Amelia and I were talking about drag as we were writing this piece and I think that gender in this play is very fluid. You know, the, the father is always already kind of feminized uh, in the eyes of society um, by economic failure and um, I think it would be maybe um, intuitive to to think that the gaze of the father is always 
kind of after the daughter as the object of desire, but um, in reality there's, you know, kind of a multi-directionality of gazes in this. You know, it's also the daughter looking back at the father and scrutinizing the family, and there's also the state looking at the father, there's the TV looking at the father, there's God looking over everyone. So um, I think gender is not that stable in this piece. I agree, and I think that the sisters in this piece also play a very important role in some in subverting some ideas about gender as well. Um, even harking back to the sneakers, girls wearing sneakers. Um, but for me, there is also a deep responsibility in the girl uh, that melds together the masculine and the feminine and and like Amina said very it's very fluid we are our fathers and our mothers and we we carry that with us so um I think there's such a great appreciation of wild unbridled femininity and also boyish masculinity uh, in the moment with the sisters that um that kind of sums up our ideas about about gender and about that uh, that mixing of certain notions is there um anything else you guys wanted to talk about or that you're really excited about in this piece that we maybe didn't get to um one thing i wanted to go back to with the stage directions uh goes back to the idea of props and uh the use of props on stage uh, for instance, the appearance, spoiler alert, of, of the satellite and the breaking of the satellite. Um, I would love to see that performed, and that's all I want to say. Also, spoiler alert, um, something that um, Milia and I talked about earlier was just how excited we are by the fact that, there, that this is a one-woman show, but that there are also... Um, all the sisters waiting off stage and, and being there all the time and listening and um, how this adds, how this piece is genuinely theatrical because there's, because there are always um, people watching and listening from, from different angles and from different um, locations on and off stage. And in the family there is always someone listening. Uh, that's how it feels. And uh, there is a new splitting being done, even through thresholds and doorways and archways, through concrete walls. So uh, we have to write a sequel, I think. That was Melia Ayash and Amina Hassan, co-authors of Split's Kin. You can find their piece and more in NER Volume 43, Number 2 available for purchase on our website at www.nereview.com. Stay tuned for our next episode on A.E. Colts' short story, The Ladybugs, which also appears in NER Volume 43, Number 2. This episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by Andrew Grossman and Kate Sadoff. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth and all other music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked what you heard, please write, review, and subscribe to the podcast online on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues. From NER Out Loud. I'm Kate Sadoff. And I'm Andrew Grossman. 
Thank you for listening. listening.